Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host Sara Davison shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Dr. Nicola Sharp-Jeffs. Nicola is an expert in economic abuse as it occurs within the context of coercive control. She's worked in the violence against women and girls sector since 2006 in policy influencing and research roles. In 2016, Nicola was made a Winston Churchill Fellow and travelled to the United States and Australia to explore innovative responses to economic abuse. It was her determination to ensure that women in the UK have access to the same responses that led her to establish surviving economic abuse. Nicola is also an Emeritus Research Fellow in the Child and Women Abuse Studies Unit and a Visiting Senior Fellow in Social Policy at the School of Law and Social Sciences at the University of Suffolk. So I am super excited to welcome Nicola Sharp Jeff to the show. Welcome, Nicola. Hi, thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited because I know you do incredible work and support many, many women out there. And I know this is going to be very, very helpful for a lot of my listeners. So please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am the founder and now the chief exec of the charity Surviving Economic Abuse. Uh, We call ourselves C for short. And fundamentally, our mission is to raise awareness of economic abuse as a form of coercion and control and to seek to transform responses to it. So that might be a response by a domestic abuse charity. It might be the response of a bank. It might be the response of a housing association, Uh, any frontline professional who comes into contact with a victim or survivor um, fundamentally we want them to recognize the signs of economic abuse and to respond appropriately and in a way that empowers the victim and survivor and gives them that control they need going forward so explain to my listeners what is economic abuse how would you explain what that is so we understand economic abuse as a form of coercion and control So the new statutory definition within the Domestic Abuse Act recognises economic abuse alongside physical, sexual and emotional violence. And really all that control is about is about creating dependency, stopping someone from being independent, making their own choices um, and basically to be free to make those choices. Uh, We call it space for action. And so what an abuser tries to do is to um, deplete the resources a victim or survivor might have to be independent. Um, And we know that that kind of operates on three different levels. So a lot of abusers will seek to isolate uh, their victim in order to stop them from um, accessing that kind of peer support um, and people who might be able to support them in terms of challenging the behaviour and perhaps leaving. Um, They also seek to deplete their kind of personal resources. So through emotional abuse, um, you know, destroying their self-confidence, their self-esteem, So they feel like perhaps they're not worthy um, of meeting somebody else and being happy or they don't feel that they can cope on their own, um, you know, that they deserve no better. um, And so that would be another reason for them to stay. 
And then the third piece, which is the bit that we really focus on, is those economic resources. So do you have the money in your bank account? Do you have access to your bank account in order to be able to leave? So, you know, can you buy the bus fare? Can you get a train ticket? Can you put petrol in your car? Uh, can you afford overnight accommodation um, if you have been isolated, for example, from family and friends and don't feel that you can call on them? So those kind of post personal, social and economic resources are all really important. Um, and there feels certainly in the last, um, you know, 15 years or so that I've been working in the domestic abuse sector, it really felt that that focus on economic resources um, and the freedom that having access to those resources provides um, had really kind of been under-recognised, um, perhaps not focused on as much as they needed to be, which is why I founded the charity. That's amazing because I see this a lot in my coaching clinic. In fact, I had a client recently who she went off to work, but when she came home, she had to give her husband all the receipts of everything that she bought during the day. And not only that, she had to justify why, for example, she said she bought a coffee um, at a coffee shop rather than taking in her own flask of coffee with her. And she said that it happened for such a long time that she felt that was normal. And actually, it was only talking to me that she started to think, gosh, maybe other people don't do that. But she had always sort of accepted it because she'd been married to him for over 20 years. And this is the way she'd always lived her life. And again, she had very little access. But then it can happen to anyone, can't it? Because I've also had, you know, very well-paid lawyers, barristers that come to see me who, again, have their salaries put into their partner's accounts. And then they're given a little bit every month as an allowance and they have to ask for money, which, again, seems extremely controlling. Absolutely. And I think those examples you give are really powerful um, because I think what they are doing is kind of normalising a certain way in which money is managed, which people are then led to believe um, perhaps is normal. Um, but also they're done in such a way um, that the control is so, so insidious. So, you know, taking that first example that you talked about where, you know, someone's, you know, uh, spending is basically being monitored. Um, you know, if someone starts to question why you're spending money on coffee and they're told you're perhaps frivolous, um, perhaps that money could be better spent, um, what they're inferring is that you're not very good at managing money, actually, and that, you know, you should defer, um, you know, to your partner who is questioning you about money matters, perhaps as being better at managing money. Um, so you can start to see how behaviour might then change as a consequence of that. Um, so rather than kind of go through a conversation about why you've spent money on coffee, you simply stop spending money on coffee. Um, and I think, you know, as I said, emotionally, that starts to shrink your world because, you know, um, I'm sure you're having that coffee with a friend or a family member, um, catching up with someone, um, you know, creating those social relationships. I was just talking um, about, you know, the abuser not wanting you to have. So we see a real overlap. Um, between economic and emotional abuse certainly um, but you know also physical or sexual violence where you know part of that interrogation about how you're spending money um, might lead to a physical assault for example if the perpetrator doesn't like how you have spent that money and again that modifies behavior and um, reduces that space for action moving forward so as I said you can start to see how someone's world kind of starts shrinking they start making those independent choices they start kind of taking on perhaps the fact that they're not very good at managing money and believe that which again you know has an impact on self-esteem and confidence um, you know if I did leave would I be able to manage my money because actually what I'm hearing is you hear that I'm not very good at doing that so yeah really small examples but just really hugely powerful I think about the impact they can have more broadly um, and why we feel it's so important to be talking about this issue and to kind of really recognize that insidiousness because someone's not saying you can't spend money on coffee but you know that 
questioning about why you did, as I say, would modify your behaviour, so you might not. Absolutely. So obviously economic abuse is part of domestic abuse. Can it happen in isolation? I mean, it sounds to me like it's a very, it's a big part of coercive control, which then renders you vulnerable and isolated potentially and having those self-doubts and lack of confidence to make your own decisions and fear of leaving because you don't know where the money is, which is a very common thing that I see when people are going through a divorce. They have no idea where the money is. And then quite often, as soon as the divorce is happening, money seems to disappear so there's lots of things like that that happen. Is is it part of a bigger picture? Certainly, I would say economic abuse would always go hand in hand with emotional abuse. Um, you know, you have some people who, you know, very instrumentally go into a relationship, you know, as kind of a almost um, a con artist because, you know, they want to extract someone's um, economic worth, for example. Um, but, you know, in order to do that, you know, you have to manipulate someone into understanding you're in a relationship with them in the first place, which, you know, is going to be emotionally harmful. So I think whether it's someone, you know, kind of acting in that way or, you know, within a relationship, um, but where in which they feel entitled um, actually to control their partner. Um, I think it's very rare that you wouldn't see emotional abuse. Um, but certainly where, you know, what we're talking about is, you know, an intimate partner relationship where someone feels entitled to control the other person. It is likely, you know, if that control is challenged, that economic or emotional abuse, that things could escalate into physical or sexual violence. We know that 60% of those who experience economic abuse um, will also experience physical abuse as well. Um, and what I would say um, is it's another reason I think why it's so important to understand economic and emotional abuse, because they might be some of the kind of early warning signs that, again, if people recognised and were able to pick up on maybe a little bit earlier, um, it might be that um, the coercion and control doesn't escalate in that way. Um, but certainly I would never you know, underestimate the role of economic abuse, I think. One of the reasons why it's not being spoken about is because people kind of leave it at the end of a list and say, oh, you know, only economic abuse. But, you know, if you can't actually physically remove yourself from a situation in which someone is being physically or sexually abusive towards you, um, then you're invariably going to experience more harm as a consequence because you can't leave. And I think it emboldens the abuser to use physical or sexual violence because they know that you can't leave. Um, so, again, we know that when you see economic abuse happening in the context of coercion and control, actually you're at higher risk of domestic homicide, um, again, for that very reason. So certainly one of the things that C does is either um, sit on local domestic homicide reviews and provide expertise around economic abuse, or we sit at the Home Office and Quality Assure um, domestic homicide reviews from an economic abuse perspective. And it's really rare for us not to see economic abuse somewhere in that mix of coercion and control. Wow, those statistics are shocking, aren't they? Wow. So how common is this as a problem? It's really common. Um, so estimates suggest sort of one in six or one in five um, of the population will experience economic abuse either from a current or a former partner. And certainly we know that of those who experience domestic abuse, 95% will experience economic abuse. So, you know, I would always operate from the assumption that someone is experiencing economic abuse. Uh, so, as I said, you know, an early warning sign potentially and, you know, something to kind of really recognise and to look out for. So, How do we get into these relationships? Because I guess knowingly you wouldn't walk into that. And if someone on day one started restricting everything you could do, you probably wouldn't go much further with that relationship. Or it would definitely be a huge red flag. 
So how do we get into those situations? Well, I think, um, unfortunately, it is the behaviour of the other person and probably them that we need to focus on. Um, you know, people go into relationships, hoping, um, expecting to be able to trust a partner um, across a range of issues. And, you know, finances would be one of those. Um, certainly, I think part of the emotional distress about experiencing economic abuse is that, you know, someone that you would trust um, to ensure that you are well financially, to discover perhaps that, um, you know, they haven't been paying into the pension that they promised they'd been paying into. Um, they've perhaps been stealing from you, taking out debt in your name without your knowledge. Um, you know, that is hugely um, sort of difficult to understand um, within the context of an intimate partner relationship. So, you know, sadly, what we see is, you know, abusers, as I say, for some reason, um, you know, in the same way that we see around people exerting, um, you know, control through their um, race or their sexuality, somehow feeling that they're better. Um, certainly, you know, in the context of domestic abuse, why um, women are disproportionately impacted, although by no means um, are there no male victims. But, you know, some of this entitlement comes from, um, you know, gender inequality, you know it's it's something kind of bound up with someone really believing that they're entitled to behave in this way um and to control and to um you know escalate abuse if that control is challenged so um you know in some ways it's the luck of the draw um you know one of the reasons i'm so impassioned about this issue is um speaking to victims and survivors over the many years that i have is that you know as you're saying this can happen to anybody you know I look at women who perhaps reflect me and you think gosh you know I'm so lucky that you know I met someone who didn't behave like this to me um you know who didn't kind of create this kind of web around me that makes it so difficult to leave and certainly because a lot of women um and some men too experience economic abuse post-separation um you know it just made me so um you know, passionate about responding to this because you could see how people's lives continued to be controlled even if, you know, after they'd left, you know, if they were thousands of pounds in debt, you know, 16 years later, every month seeing um, money going out of your bank account to pay back debt that you never even took out, let alone were aware of, um, you know, it's just a form of abuse that sort of continues and um, the survivors that we talk to and it's the name of a report that we have around um, identified some of the issues that experiences around experiencing economic abuse is that victims and survivors say you know it's your past your present and their, and your future they just can't imagine a life where you know they're not being controlled in that way um you know which is incredibly unjust and something that we need to stop from happening so maybe the family courts award a settlement or child maintenance is set up and then it doesn't come through and again it's men and women i guess there's you've got to always see both sides but predominantly i guess you're saying that it is a female-based challenge predominantly is that right well certainly if you're thinking about issues like child maintenance um, we know the vast majority of single parents are women um, so it's more likely that they're going to experience problems in relation to child maintenance and certainly we see it as a massive issue um, in terms of abuse post-separation so you know we've talked about kind of physical sexual and emotional abuse um, certainly physical and sexual abuse are quite difficult you know when you're not in physical proximity to the person that you're abusing so if someone has left perhaps they've relocated where the perpetrator doesn't know where they are um, what they'll seek to do is to control you know in the ways that they can still do so um, and obviously via the child maintenance system um, is a really good example of how they can do that so you know they might not pay one month or they might reduce the payment one month or they might um, say that they can no longer afford that payment um, and ask for a review to happen. So, you know, they can create this kind of um, 
inconsistency, this instability, which makes it really difficult to plan and to rebuild your life because for a lot of victims and survivors, again, you know, they'll be really relying on that payment in terms of, you know, being independent, being able to look after their children. Um, you know, so that instability that I just talked about, you know, makes it really difficult in that process of rebuilding, um, especially if you have physically relocated, you know, you're setting up a home again, you're settling children into school, um, you might be going through criminal proceedings, you know, it's just another um, ongoing difficulty to deal with. And, you know, um, again, in terms of powerful statistics, we know that um, leaving sometimes is stopped by not having the economic resources that you need to leave. Um, and we know for a vast majority of victims and survivors, they go back because they don't have the economic resources they do need to move forward independently. So this is just so crucial a, to that ability to leave, but also to be able to stay away. So interesting. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners are thinking, gosh, well, I might be in that situation. So how, if someone listening does think that they might be in that situation, what can they do? So I would say if they can to have conversations, um, certainly uh, if they felt safe enough to do so actually with their partner. Um, I think if you're fearful of talking to your partner about your kind of economic well-being or your finances and that's probably a sign in and of itself that you are experiencing abuse um, but certainly if you're not sure and you feel safe you know to initiate a conversation and see what the response you know looks like would give you some understanding um, and or speak to family and friends you know kind of gauge how their money economic resources are kind of shared and managed um, to get some kind of contrast um, you know one thing that you know, I think is really important is about teaching young people from a very early age that, you know, money and economic resources more broadly. So things like housing, you know, a car, having a mobile phone, you know, all of these things are kind of really important and they can um, be used as a source of power. And if we're not going to treat or um, explain to young people about, you know, how those things can be a source of power and, you know, can limit your freedoms if you don't have them and only kind of focus on, you know, um, managing a bank account, for example, uh, you know, it's really difficult for them to know what to expect, you know, what's um, common and what's not common, you know, should if someone's pushing you to open a joint bank account and they're insisting that you close your your personal bank account, you know, is that normal is there a reason why you couldn't have both you know conversations like this are really important so I think kind of checking it out with other people um, certainly going on the surviving economic abuse website um, we've got a really lovely tool which we developed with victims and survivors um, which helps you identify if economic abuse is what you're experiencing kind of based on language and experiences um, that might resonate um, and certainly we have a, a range of resources on the website that can help um, people who feel that they might be experiencing economic abuse about what to do next that's great there's somewhere people can go to find out more so is there anything that needs to change in the system so for example you know are there things that I know you do a lot of work behind the scenes campaigning but what sort of things need to happen what changes would you like to see um, I think we've got a long way to go still. Certainly, we are now naming and defining economic abuse via the Domestic Abuse Act, which um, is really important in and of itself. Because again, if you don't uh, name the issue and people can't um, use language to explain what's happening to them, you know, you're kind of in a, a difficult place from the get go. Uh, but it's really all about those uh, transformation of responses that I was talking about. So, you know, there's so much change that needs to happen in lots of different spaces. So, you know, just off the top of my head, um, you know, things like the payment of universal credit, you know, joint claims going to one bank account, 
Um, you know, obviously that really creates a high risk of economic abuse in someone to be able to control. So we're kind of really pushing for joint payments um, to be separated so that both parties receive that independent income. Um, certainly recognising economic abuse within the family courts is really important um, because, again, we see perpetrators bring victims and survivors back countless times, you know, run up legal bills. Um, you know, they might um, drain any savings that they do have. Um, they might not qualify for legal aid. They might um, take out loans um, in order to pay that um, those legal fees you know they might get to a point where they might be borrowing dangerously um they might get to a point where they have to represent themselves because they've got no money left um you know all about draining of the resources that they do have by the perpetrator so you know it would be fantastic for you know the bank the courts to kind of recognize that you know this is the case and that actually you know this is someone's um purpose of taking someone back to court continuously so I think really just to kind of I think when you understand what economic abuse is, you start to recognise how kind of the systems in lots of different contexts can facilitate it. And we're all about being able to recognise those opportunities to facilitate that ongoing control and to find ways of closing them down. I think that's really important, like educating. I mean, I think it would be great if legal professionals, all of them, lawyers, barristers, judges, had to do some compulsory form of training in this area. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I suppose in its absence, um, you know, we have developed best practice resources for lawyers, um, which are available on our website again. So, you know, if people want to demonstrate best practice in this area and to really understand it, that resource exists. Um, you know, similarly, we run training around what economic abuse looks like and what that looks like in particular contexts, including the legal system as well. So whilst, you know, we will always push for that training to be mandatory, um, you know, I would hope that professionals recognising the scale of domestic abuse generally and economic abuse specifically, you know, would be looking those resources out, um, you know, and really wanted to do the best for their clients. If people want to find more out about Unicla and more about the work you do in your charity, where can they go to find out more? So the website is www.survivingeconomicabuse.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Um, so the handle is at C, so that's S-E-A, um, and resource, so at C resource. Okay. Now, one final question I have for you that I ask for all my guests. Um, my podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness, and I think it's really important to know what happiness is for you so you can recognise it along the way, no matter what you're going through. Maybe you're suffering from economic abuse right now, but what is the happiness for you, Nicola? This is when I think I should have done better research and known what question was coming so I could have prepared. <laughs> um, I think for me, it goes back to the heart of um, the issue, really, kind of having the freedom to make the choices that I want to make, to live life on my own terms and really to achieve my own self-potential. Oh, that's amazing. I agree. I think having the freedom... It's something when you come out of a toxic relationship, you really start to appreciate when I mean, you get your own freedom back and you can speak your own mind, you can do your own things and you can control your own finances. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. You've been a fabulous guest. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for today's episode. Do head on over to survivingeconomicabuse.org to find out more about Nicola and her work. And I look forward to you joining me on our next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. 
Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sara's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness. Thank you.